Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9. Scripture promises that if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer, during which time John will turn the fan down a little bit so my notes and Bible are not uh, acting like they're in a gale force wind up here. I don't see John in his cubicle, so that means Bryce or Jim has to handle the situation. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come together this morning to worship you through the teaching of your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have given us who helps us to understand these things, who teaches us, who is the one who is producing in us a spiritual growth. Father, as long as we walk by means of the Spirit, then that ministry is activated. But when we sin, we know that it is squelched or shut down. We must not only confess our sins, but continue to walk by means of the Holy Spirit for that sanctifying ministry to continue. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we would be responsive to what the Holy Spirit uh, teaches us, that we may continue to advance and grow in our spiritual life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are about done with our study on who is Jesus. Today is our 17th lesson. We'll have one more And after that, we will begin a study of the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. So I know some of you are going to be excited about that. There's always people who are going to get all all worked up because we're going to do a study of Revelation. But it is a very important book in the New Testament. Some people, I've heard pastors say, well, I'm not going to teach it because it just, you know, it just feeds people's curiosity about the future. Well, if that's what it did, then the Word of God would not include it. There are important purposes and reasons to understand what is written in Revelation, and it is crucial doctrine for us. So we'll begin that after we finish our current series, Who is Jesus? Open your Bibles with me to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, we are going to conclude our study this morning on the doctrine of the kenosis The doctrine of kenosis. Kenosis is spelled K-E-N-O-S-I-S. It is from the Greek verb kenoo, K-E-N-O-O, 
and kenosis is a crucial doctrine for understanding what happened when Jesus came. We Several weeks ago we saw that, or in this study, let's back up even further, in this study what we have done is to look at what the Old Testament taught about the Messiah being fully divine, that the Old Testament also prophesied that the Messiah would be fully human. This came together historically in the virgin conception and virgin birth. At the virgin birth, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal second person of the Trinity, took onto himself true humanity. Now, just exactly how do we understand that? Well, we studied that last time. For all of eternity now, the second person of the Trinity will exist in hypostatic union. In the last few weeks, we've addressed two questions as they occurred in the early church, as the early church fathers, as they're called, sought to understand what the Bible taught. How do we articulate what the Bible says about the person of Jesus? First of all, the question they sought to answer was, who was Jesus before he came? We addressed that the last couple of weeks. This gets at the issue of the Trinity. We believe in one God, but if Jesus is God, is that two gods or one God? How do we understand this? And from this question, they clearly articulated the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one in essence, but he has three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The next question is, once you identify Jesus as being fully God, that is eternally God with no beginning, that he has always existed along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The next question you must answer is, who is Jesus when he came? How do you understand this addition of humanity to Jesus? And we saw that in the early church there were various uh, ics, acts, and spasms that uh, attempted to explain it in a wrong way. They didn't have a clear articulation like you do. They had a somewhat fuzzy idea, uh, or let's say an, an ill an an undefined presentation of the Scripture. Jesus is fully God, he's fully man, but how do you put that together? They believed that, but they didn't have a precise, technical, theological definition of the hypostatic union. We've studied the hypostatic union, that this is a technical term from the Greek noun hypostasis, meaning a substantial nature, essence, actual being or reality. It is the idea of essence or, or nature, that there are two natures, a, a divine nature and a human nature that are united together in the one person of Jesus Christ. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes, the union being personal and eternal. Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity, united in one person forever. This is the understanding that came out of those church councils that we studied, the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., the Council of Chalcedon, finalized their deliberations and their attempts to express accurate Christology in 451 A.D., Last time we began to look at one of the problems that really came up in the 20th century, and that is a problem, or late, actually late 19th century to 20th century. That's the problem of this verb, 
translated to empty in Philippians 2, uh, verse 7. Now, as we look at this, I want to review our exegesis, and I want to clarify some points. I got caught in a trap that happens every now and then due to the way the uh, both the Greek text I was using and many of the English versions divide the verses. And it actually, I, I, I struggled with this for a while, and I didn't realize it until this last week. So we'll go through and I'll point out what I'm talking about when we get there. Philippians 2 is a very practical passage. We're talking about some abstract concepts, but as I keep pointing out, if you're going to apply Scripture in your life, you have to be able to think, and this comes from an ultimate understanding of reality. Practical application doesn't just flow because it works. It doesn't just flow. It's not the right thing to do because it makes you happy. It's not the right thing to do even because it provides stability in your life. It's the right thing to do because it's ultimately grounded in the uh, in ultimate reality of the person of the Godhead, both the Trinity and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul, when he gets into these discussions dealing with personal relationships, frequently drops back to what appears to most 20th century evangelicals as some sort of deep, profound theological abstraction. It's not abstract. It's reality. But see, we have to think of God in terms of reality and not in terms of some abstraction just because we don't see God. So to handle the problem of personal relationships and humility, Paul uses the example of humility in the person of Christ after the Incarnation. But to do that, he steps back to what happens just at the Incarnation. So he says, have this mindset in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, the mindset, usually translated attitude from the Greek verb phreneo, means to think or to reason. And the attitude that he wants us to have is the attitude that he focuses on in verse 8. That is humility. This is the prime virtue in the Christian life, as we'll see. So that's the attitude that we are to have, not the attitude that takes place when Christ becomes incarnate. That's an attitude of deity. You can't be God. You can't imitate God, God's eternal mentality. He's omniscient, and you're not. You have finite mentality. So the mentality here is the thinking that was in Christ in his humanity, exemplified by his humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So Philippians 2.6, who, although he existed in the form of God, and so at this point Paul is going to go back to what happens just prior to the incarnation, as it were, who, although he existed in the form of God, and existed there is the Greek participle, huparko, which indicates continuous existence, eternal existence, although he eternally existed in the form of God, the morphe of God, which has to do with his essence or nature, and that has to do with his eternal deity. Although he eternally existed in the essence of God, he did not regard equality, that is another word for thought, Remember, the spiritual life is a thinking life. It's not feeling. It's not emoting. 
It is thinking. He did not think equality with God was something to be grasped. So we translate it, who? The Lord Jesus Christ, although he eternally existed with identical essence to God, did not think, this is uh, the attitude of, of humanity here, he did not think, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality of God, he did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, harpagmas, which has to do with grabbing something or asserting something um, uh, by gripping it or grasping after it, a seizure of something which is comparable to how Adam and the woman were grasping after or seizing uh, deity in the garden. So there's a contrast there. Uh, corrected translation, who, the Lord Jesus Christ, although he eternally existed with identical essence to God, did not think equal- equality with God was a claim to be asserted. But in contrast to that, he emptied himself. What does it mean that he emptied himself? This is our finite verb, the main verb. You have to follow the finite verbs here, and perhaps if you're marking your, your, in your Bible, in verse 7 and verse 8, there are two finite verbs, and they are... Uh, he, he emptied himself. If you use a New King James or, or an Old King James, it's being found in, uh, excuse me, made himself of no reputation. That's how it's translated in the King James. New American Standard, NIV translated, emptying himself. But he emptied himself. This is our verb, kanao. And it literally means to make empty. This word is found in several places in the New Testament. Uh, for example, in Romans 4.14, it's translated to be made void. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, it's translated was made void or emptied. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.15, empty. This is the idea. So in some sense, Jesus empties himself. Now, that doesn't mean that everything disappears, but that something is restricted. He empties himself. Now, how does he do that? This is the key. Is there are, the emptying is further defined by three participles in the Greek. Now, a participle functions like an adverb, and these are what is called adverbial participle of means. And that tells us that the emptying was done by means of doing three things. It's these three participles that are important, and I missed that last week. I've missed it before because the way the Greek text I was using punctuates it, which is the way the New King James Version, New American Standard, NIV, a couple of other versions translate this. Now, I've said this many times. Remember, in the original text, there's no periods. There are no question marks. There's no paragraph marks. There's no paragraph divisions, and you have to determine these things by grammar. Sometimes that's interpretive. What happens is, if you look at your Bible, verse 7 says, He made himself of no reputation, or he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. That's the first participle. Coming in the likeness of men, that's the second participle, or being made in the likeness of men, New American Standard. And then... Usually you have the verse divided at that point. Verse 7 ends with a period, and verse 8 begins as if it's a new sentence, and it begins with a participle. 
And so it usually reads as an independent clause, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Now, that's a bad division. The old King James had it right in the way they divided this. You have three participles that follow the main verb of verse 7. He empties himself, and that first clause that's in most of your Bibles in verse 8 really is the last clause of verse 7. The next sentence begins, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. That's the next sentence. So the way this looks is like this. He emptied himself by taking the form that is the essence of a servant. That's the noun morphe again, indicating nature or essence. He took on the essence. He added to himself. How does he empty himself? Not by getting rid of deity, but by adding to his deity the essence or the nature of a servant. Rather than holding on to his divine prerogatives to be worshipped and to lead, he takes on or adds to it the nature of a servant. He comes to the earth to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he empties himself by taking on the essence of a servant, and secondly, by, and I've tra- correctly translated this it, because it's the participle from Genemai, by coming into existence in the appearance of mankind. Now let's back up a minute and take a look at this. He takes on the form of a servant, and that second clause, translated being made in the likeness of men, should be translated more along the idea of being made in the appearance of men, by coming into existence in the appearance of, of, of men, plural. Now, the reason I emphasize that is if you looked at Jesus, you wouldn't know he was any different. He had the appearance of every other human being, but there was something different about Jesus. He didn't have a sin nature. And that way, he wasn't like everybody else in humanity. And it's a plural noun in that uh, sentence. So he's being, he is, comes into existence in the appearance of mankind, but he lacks the humans, I mean, he lacks the sin nature. And then the third participle in this string is at the beginning of verse 8 and really belongs at the end of verse 7. And being found, and it's from the uh, Greek verb horisko, uh, and being found, being discovered, being found in appearance as a man. And here we have the noun uh, schema indicating physical form as an individual human being. So he's found in the physical form of an individual human being. So this is how you should break it. Look at the slide. Being found in appearance as a man should have a period at the end of it. That's not how I have it up on the screen, but it should have a period at the end of it. And then the next sentence begins, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this tells us that in the, in the text of Scripture itself, how does he empty himself? He does it three ways. He adds to himself the nature of being a servant. Secondly, 
He comes into existence in the appearance of humanity. He is, he is like, he is a true human being, but he lacks a sin nature, so he looks like everybody else. There's nothing distinguishing about him. And third, he is found in appearance, schema, the physical form, physical body of a human being. All right? He is found with the physical form, physical shape, physical body as a man. Then we get to the next sentence. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the mentality we are to imitate, is the humility he exemplified as he grew and matured in his spiritual life, as he grew and matured in his physical life. Now, this concept of the kenosis has been a little bit difficult to understand over the years. Kenosis means to empty yourself. How does he empty himself? And I said that the classic definition is that he empties himself by limiting the the, um, independent use of his attributes. Now, think about this. Verse 7. He emptied himself by doing three things. When did that take place? When did he empty himself and take on the essence of a servant, uh, take on the appearance as every human being and the body of a man? When did that happen? That happened at the instant of the incarnation. That happens at the instant of the incarnation. That is That took place at a point in time in history when the God-man added to himself humanity. But, verse 8, 8b in some of your Bibles, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That took place from the incarnation to the cross. That sentence summarizes his spiritual progress and growth during the incarnation, from infancy to the point that he died on the cross. So the kenosis itself has to do with what happened at the incarnation. How did God become man? Did he empty himself by giving up the independent use of his attributes? And there we, I challenge the use of that word independent because, at the, see, at the incarnation you're talking about the second person of the Trinity without humanity giving up his independent use. Has the second person of the Trinity ever functioned independently of the Father? No. So, once again, that's kind of a, a, a word. I used it. I taught that definition for years. It's in, you know, John Walford's Christology and num- numerous other authors use that same definition. But it should be questioned because the Son never operated independently of the Father in all of eternity. They are united in terms of their uh, purpose and their procedures. So, what does it mean to to empty? And the word empty really means that he restricted the use of his deity to solve the problems that he would face in his new human body. So, before we go forward, one of the ways in which we often understand a concept, especially one that's a little difficult like this, is to put it in contrast with what's wrong. So let's look at seven false views, 
seven wrong views of the kenosis. Seven wrong views. And these have all been held and set forth by different, usually liberal, liberal uh, theologians. First wrong view is that Christ's deity was veiled and limited only in certain important respects. Now, this falls short of what the kenosis is. This just says it was veiled. In, in, in other words, this is an attempt to say that, that all the kenosis was was that Christ veiled his glory. But it's much more than that. It is not simply the veiling of his glory. It is because this loses the whole dimension of the example that he's setting for the Christian life. So this is true in a sense, but it's limited. It falls short of all the dimensions of kenosis. A second way in which kenosis is sometimes understood is that Christ was in possession of all of his attributes, but he acted as though he were not. Well, that's not what's going on either. See, this leaves out the first point. They are veiled. His glory is veiled. There are some limitations, self-imposed limitations. So the third, I mean, no, this, this second point is not correct. Third way in which, uh, or third wrong view of the kenosis is that Christ gave up certain relative attributes such as the omni-attributes, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. Obviously, omnipresence became finite. You know, the infinite became finite. How that happened, we can't explain. We don't understand that. But, but if Christ gave up his omniscience, then he's no longer God. If he gave up his omnipotence, he's no longer God. If he gave them up, he's no longer God. So giving them up is not a correct way of expressing this. It's, if you say he restricted the use of them, that's fine. But he didn't give them up. If he gave them up, he wouldn't be God anymore. A fourth wrong view or wrong way to understand the kenosis is that Christ gave up his essential attributes of deity. This just takes the third a step further. Again, same problem. He doesn't give up his deity. He restricts it, but he doesn't give it up. The sixth, or the, excuse me, the fifth, takes it a little further. Christ emptied out of himself all of his attributes so that his deity was non-existent. This is the fifth wrong view. He didn't empty out of himself all of his attributes so his deity is non-existent. He's still God, and he still does things from his deity. See, I've heard people say that Jesus lived his whole life. He didn't do anything from his deity. If Jesus didn't do some things from his deity, how, where do you point to evidence that he was God? See, he did some things in his deity. He did some things that evidence that he was God. He didn't use his deity, though, to solve problems, to advance in his spiritual life, to handle tests or temptations. The sixth wrong approach to kenosis is that this entire event is to be placed merely within the earthly life of Christ. See, there is a certain element of this that applies forever because Jesus is forever in hypostatic union. So it's not just restricted to his earthly life. Seventh, the basic emphasis of all canonic theologians 
is that Christ laid aside deity to become man. That's the idea. The, the error that runs through all of this, or most of these, is, is that Christ somehow diminishes his deity or gives it up or lays part of it aside to become a man. The issue in the hypostatic union is that deity adjusted to humanity. The eternal second person of the Trinity added humanity to himself. He doesn't give up any deity in the process. So just to try to understand it in a positive sense, we know, first of all, that Jesus did not give up any deity. He did not give up any of his uh, omni-characteristics. He doesn't give up any expressions of deity. What he does is to lay aside or to restrict the use of those deities so that he can live his life as a man relying upon all of the same resources that God gives you and me. That means that when Jesus is a small child, he's learning the scriptures just like you learned them. He's having to memorize scripture just like you do. He is having to learn doctrine just like we do and apply it just like we do. He's facing tests and temptations just like you and I do, and he is having to handle those with the same divine resources that you and I have, the filling of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So he is pioneering the present spiritual life. You can't look at Jesus and say, well, of course he handled that. He was God. No, you haven't understood the point. He handled that as a man so that he could show us how to do that. Let me give you a couple of examples in Scripture of how he used his, his, his deity or restricted his, his deity. You have some examples of his finite knowledge. We know that in his deity, Jesus is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. Jesus never increases or diminishes in his knowledge. And yet in his humanity, he clearly expresses finite knowledge. For example, in Matthew 24:36, he says, but of that re- relating to his, his coming back, his return, second coming, he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. In other words, speaking from his humanity, he has no knowledge. What Jesus does in his, in his person, even though he is, true, he is full, undiminished deity, he limits access and use of those divine attributes. And only occasionally, as it were, he opens a door and reaches over and uses divine attributes for a particular purpose. And another example, in Mark 5, 9, when he is uh, casting the demon out of the Gadarene demoniac, he inquires, what is your name? See, as God, he would know the name of the demon, but in his humanity, he doesn't. He has to get information. And the demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Jesus also learned the same way we do. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11, gives us an interesting insight into how the Messiah would learn. That particular passage is a prophecy related to the Messiah. And in Isaiah chapter 50, beginning in verse 4, we read, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. 
The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. See, this is the mentality of Jesus as a young boy. It is God who is teaching the Word to him. And he is learning day by day. He has to exercise positive volition to learning the Word. He has to awaken in the morning and be responsive to the doctrine that is being taught to him on a day-by-day basis. Now, all of these passages indicate that in his humanity he had finite knowledge, limited knowledge. But other passages indicate that Jesus clearly used the divine omniscience on occasion. For example, in John uh, 2.24, we're told, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Well, that indicates omniscience. If you say, well, that's not real clear. He could have just figured some of those things out. He says, I know that most people are not very trustworthy, and I don't trust too many people. He could have figured that out in his humanity. We have a little clear passage at the end of John 1. In John 1, verse 45 to 48, Philip, who has already been called by the Lord to follow him as a disciple, goes to get his friend Nathanael. And in verse 45, Philip finds Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Well, come on and see. Test it out empirically. 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. In other words, he's not a, he's not a hypocrite. So Jesus sees Nathanael and knows his character. That indicates omniscience. Then Nathanael said, Well, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. See, Jesus is exercising omniscience. This idea that Jesus didn't do anything from his deity is absurd. He clearly utilized omniscience, but it's not to solve a problem. He's not facing a test or temptation. He is demonstrating who he is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that the Messiah would be both God and man. Another passage, John 16:30. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for, for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. His omniscience was evident to the, evident to the disciples and so as a result of that, they realized that he came from God and that he was God. Other passages indicate his omnipotence. Matthew chapter 4, when at the beginning of the temptation uh, narrative, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are, first class condition, if you are, and you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Verse 4, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus, Jesus easily could have turned the stones into bread out of his omnipotence. But he solves the temptation by relying on promises in his soul from the Word of God. This is how we are to solve problems and temptation is by claiming promises and utilizing the principles of God's Word. 
Another example of how, that, how the Lord handled things was in terms of casting out demons. Matthew 12:28, he says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, emphasizing that at least in some cases when he cast out demons, he did it by means of the Holy Spirit. Only a couple of passages indicate that. Other passages don't mention it. I'm not sure that he did it every time by the Spirit of God, but we can say for sure that on some occasions he cast out demons by means of the Spirit of God, not from his deity, but from his humanity. Luke 4.14, And Jesus returned to to the Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding districts. So there we see that he is relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit. He's demonstrating his own limited power, limited ability. Luke 4.18, when he is speaking in the synagogue in uh, Capernaum, he says, this is synagogue in Nazareth, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The only point of the passage to emphasize is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He is not speaking from him, from his omnipotence, but from the power of the Holy Spirit. Other passages such as Matthew 26, uh, 36 to 46 when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he does not rely upon his omnipotence there to solve the problem of, of the cross and his arrest. So there's times when there's limited power. There are other times when he clearly utilizes his own omnipotence. For example, in Matthew 8, uh, 26 and 27, when he's caught out on the storm of Galilee, he uses his own power to rebuke the winds. He's, the disciples are all panicky and they're, they're afraid. These are experienced seamen. These aren't rookies like most of us. These are experienced fishermen and seamen out on the water, and they are frightened to death that they will uh, be destroyed and drowned. And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. It doesn't say he did this from his, by the Spirit. He did it from his own authority as the one who controls the world. He is the one who created it by him and for him and through him are all things were created and everything that was made was made through him. John 1, 3 and 4. And the men were amazed. What kind of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. He is God. John 8, 5 uh, and 6. He says, um, excuse me, I have a wrong reference there. But in other passages, clearly, for example, John 3, should be John 3, 5, and 6. I typed my reference in wrong. John 3, 5, and 6, when Jesus turns the water into wine, he does that from his own power. He does that from his own authority as the, uh, as the creator, as the agent of creation. So Jesus clearly does certain things from his own power, thus demonstrating that he doesn't give up these attributes. He just voluntarily restricts the use of these attributes so that he does not rely upon them in his humanity to solve uh, temptation, testing, or personal problems. When you look at kenosis, it indicates that Christ's pre-incarnate glory is clearly veiled. 
but it is revealed at times. For example, in the Mount of Transfiguration, again, in, uh, at the time that he is arrested, there's a brief flashing forth of his glory, and all the Roman troops are knocked down as a result of that. So there are times when he clearly uh, does not use these attributes. Now, what's the purpose of the kenosis? Why, why is it that he goes through this t- time of living on the earth without access, without using his deity? Well, first of all, it was to qualify him as a man to die on the cross as our substitute. He had to pass the tests again and again that Adam failed to pass, reach maturity, reach spiritual maturity, go to the cross as our substitute. So he does. He qualifies as a man, not by relying upon his divine attributes, but by utilizing the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine. Second, he, he uh, the, the second purpose is to demonstrate by example the spiritual life of the church age. And he is pioneering that spiritual life. For example, in Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to mature. This is the verb teleao, to not to perfect, but to mature, to bring to maturity the author of their salvation through sufferings. So Jesus Christ advanced to spiritual maturity the same way that you and I advance to spiritual maturity. Another passage, 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, that would be uh, huper plus the genitive, suffered as a substitute for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Now, it's not the suffering on the cross that is the, the example. It is his life that is an example. First Peter 2.22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. This is the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ, which is what we will cover in our last session before we finish the subject, that Jesus Christ was sinless. He was perfectly qualified to go to the cross, and he can only that only qualifies him if he does it in his humanity. What we see here is something of a comparison or analogy to David in the Old Testament. Remember in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 16, Saul has been rejected as king because of his disobedience. And David is anointed as king. He's the, you know, the, the run of the litter and he's out with the sheep and, and Samuel goes to Jesse's house and, and says, I'm supposed to anoint one of your sons to be king. And so Jesse trots out all his good looking boys and he apparently doesn't care too much for David. And David is out with the sheep and Jesse doesn't even want to own up to the fact that there's another son. And so, Samuel looks at all of them, and they all look like they ought to be king. Remember, Saul looked like he ought to be king too. And they got the man who looked, you know, regal and royal, and aristocratic, but he was a failure. David's just a young, probably about 14 or 15. Don't buy into this picture you see in most stories that David was just a kid. 
Because David is too, too strong to be just a kid. You take some 10 or 11 year old, they don't have the musculature, they don't have the, the, the strength yet to do the things David did. Remember when David goes to fight Goliath, Saul says, well, what are your credentials? David says, well, when I'm out with the sheep, whenever the bear comes or whenever the lion comes, then I grab him by the, by the beard and I hit him over the head with my staff and kill him. You just think about that a minute. little hand-to-hand combat with a bear or a lion with it, armed with a staff. He's got tremendous courage, but he also has to have a certain amount of physical strength. That means he's post-puberty, folks. He's not a small boy. He, he is probably, you know, a little older, 14, 15, maybe he's oldest, 17 or 18. But he's anointed as king, but he's not yet king. He has to go through a period of testing. He has to demonstrate his qualifications, one of which was to be a warrior. And so he does that by defeating Goliath. Another was to be a musician. He does that. But for a period of some 15 or 20 years, David goes through this rejection from Saul. And where at times he's an outlaw and Saul is persecuting David. And David has to hide out down in the caves, down in the wilderness of Judea. And at one point, David gets out of fellowship and he goes over to the Philistines for a while to hide out there. But Dave, this period of David's rejection and persecution is a period when David is enduring tests to demonstrate his character. And that is analogous to, to Christ during his life having to endure trials to reveal his uh, royal character. He's anointed, he's the Mashiach, but he is not yet installed as the king. So during his life, he endures trials to reveal his royal character. So he reveals his character, but he also is demonstrating for us the spiritual life. Now there's three implications of kenosis that lay the foundation for tremendous application in the Christian life. It's not just nice little intellectual exercises in trying to understand the hypostatic union. The first implication has to do with the basic virtue in the Christian life. The basic virtue in the Christian life is humility. And how do you understand humility? It's not being a doormat. It's not letting people take advantage of you. It's not walking around with some sort of a uh, pseudo-humility, talking about, oh, I'm just not really very good at what I do, and, and some sort of self-effacement. That has nothing to do with humility. If you look at the passage in Philippians chapter 2, the point is he humbles himself by being obedient. Humility has to do with being under authority and obeying that authority. You may be able to do a job better than anyone else. You may be in a position at your place of employment or on a sports team or in, a, in any kind of relationship where your immediate superior, the person who's in authority over you, is a real loser. They may be a loser in terms of their character. They may be a failure in terms of their abilities or capabilities. And you may be smarter. You may be more well-qualified. You may be uh, superior to them in every category that matters. 
Yet you have to put yourself under their authority and whatever they say, no matter how screwy it may be, I'm not talking about doing something immoral or illegal, but something you just know this just isn't going to get the job done. You have to submit to their authority and do it to the best of your ability. That's humility. And you're not going to run them down behind their back or malign them or get involved in gossip or any of those things. That's what humility is. It is it is a orientation to authority. And that comes, first of all, from grace orientation. There's about five stages in the development of humility in the Christian life. And the first is grace orientation. It begins at salvation, realizing that you're not any better than anybody else. And at salvation, Christ did everything for you, and you just relax and accept it. True humility then leads to teachability. You're willing to learn. You don't know it all. You have to completely revamp your thinking. So you have to submit to the authority of a pastor teacher and the Word of God, and you have to be willing to rethink all of your cherished opinions about life. That's humility. That's teachability. Third, it's submission to the Father's authority. I know that the Father says I need to do this, I want to do that, but instead I'm going to do what the Father says to do. This is what Jesus is demonstrating. Of all the pressure he went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, let this cup pass from me if it be thy will. But the Father doesn't. So Jesus Christ goes to the cross that no matter what it may cost us, personally, professionally, we're willing to relinquish it in order to fulfill the Father's plan and purpose and to live in obedience to the, to the Word of God. Once we get past those, that develops a personal love for God the Father. Actually, as we're developing those, our love for God the Father is increasing, and that becomes our motivation in spiritual maturity. And as our personal love for God the Father increases, then as a result of that, we have a foundation for impersonal love for all mankind. You can't have impersonal love for all mankind unless you understand grace. Because the issue is that we're to deal with others just as God, for Christ's sake, has dealt with us. That includes forgiveness and many other, many other aspects. So what we learn here is that the first and primary virtue in the Christian life is humility. The second thing that we learn here is that submission or subordination to authority does not imply that the person who is submitting is inferior or less significant than the one in authority. Let me say that again. When you submit to someone in authority, that doesn't mean they're better, smarter than you. That doesn't mean they're more of a person, more equal than you. See, this is the lie that has been foisted on the American people from the feminist movement for the last 30 years. See, feminism comes along and says, oh, that old traditional teaching that the wife needs to submit to the husband Well, we believe in equal rights. Wife, you're equal to your husband. You don't have to submit to him. See, what's underlying that is this assumption that submission means that if the wife is to submit to the husband, then she's not equal to the husband. She's, you know, and, and they'll argue, well, she may be smarter. She may be more talented. In many cases, that's true. There are men who marry women who have a lot more on the ball than they do especially spiritually. But 
the implication of that is that if Jesus is under the authority of the Father, then he's not equal to the Father. And that's blasphemy. So you see, at the very core of the whole feminist movement is a lie that is an assault on the nature of the Trinity and the, de- and the full deity of Jesus Christ. A couple of passages that indicate this, 1 Corinthians 15, 27, and 28. For he has put all things that he is, that he is God the Father. For he has put all things in subjection under his, that is, Jesus Christ's feet. But when he, God the Father, says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that, evident that he, God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Now look at that last phrase. At the time that all things are put under subjection to the Son, the Son himself is also put under subjection to the Father. This is in the future. He's always under the Father's authority. That doesn't mean he's less than God. Implication here is brought out by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And we studied this. Kephale, translated head, is the word for authority. I want you to understand that Christ is the authority over every man. He's our authority. And the man is the authority over every woman, and God is the authority over Christ. For there, so the idea of submission has nothing to do with inequality. And it is a sign of humility to recognize that you're under someone's authority and to submit, even when they're wrong, even when they're not very talented, even when they're not too bright, even when you know they're making a mistake. See, it doesn't say, wives, submit yourself to your husbands when they've got it all squared away and they're making good decisions. It's not very difficult to submit to somebody in authority who's doing the right thing the right way and they're doing the best possible job imaginable. But it's tough when it's just the opposite. But that's what real humility is. And if you can't get past that, In any area of life, it's going to apply in sports, it's going to apply in the military, it's going to apply in the workplace. That is why, parents, your most important task is to drill authority orientation into your children. Otherwise, they'll be failures when they grow up as adults. And then the third implication is that this gives us a unique judge. A unique judge. Because Jesus Christ is a judge who, in his priesthood, has gone through the same things we have. Implication comes from the priesthood passages in Hebrews 4, 14, and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. So what qualifies him to be our high priest is that he's gone through it in the same way that we've gone through it. But this also qualifies him as a judge. John 5.22 For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. 
See, the Father doesn't judge us or evaluate us in terms of our Christian life. The Father hasn't been there, as it were. But the Son has. He has been there. And He is the one who evaluates us. And we're going to try to pull off all of our excuses, and He's going to say, wait, no, wait, wait. I've been there. I applied the Word. I did it the way it should be done. It could have been done. You can't make excuses. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame your environment. You can't blame your culture. It's volition. So we're going to have a judge who evaluates us and one who went through it in the same way that we did. Now, Hebrews 4.15 ends on a very important issue. He was tempted in all areas as we are yet without sin. That introduces the doctrine of impeccability, which is what we'll conclude our study with next time before we move on, giving giving us a great appreciation and understanding for who our Savior is with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to such a great understanding of who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is, to gain a greater appreciation for what he went through in his humanity as he matured through the things that he suffered, as he learned, as he applied the Word through the filling of the Spirit day in and day out until he reached maturity. That was our model. That's our pattern. Father, we pray that as we study your word, we might be challenged to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Scripture makes it clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of uh, reforming your life, participating in religious ritual, or any other human factor. Just simply a matter of trusting in Christ as Savior. Father, we pray that you would use the things that we have studied today to refine and sharpen our understanding of our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.